morning. And the title of this morning's message is Understanding the Warning of Hebrews 6. Anybody ever been afraid of Hebrews 6? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep, a lot of us have. <laughs> this morning we are going to continue our study in the book of Hebrews, and we will be looking specifically into chapter 6 and the warning that is found there. According to every commentary I've ever read and every minister I've ever heard on this particular passage, this is one of the most difficult to understand. Wow, why did God make it so hard? But did he really? <laughs> we shall see. So for some people, one of the scariest scriptures is the scriptures found in Hebrews 6. But I believe that if we keep the passage of scripture in its historical context, and apply the proper audience relevance, it ceases to sound so scary. <laughs> now, again, the historical context is the last of the last days. This letter was written somewhere between two and five years just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But those who were to receive this letter didn't know exactly when that destruction was going to take place. They just knew they were suffering. <laughs> they only knew that Jesus had prophesied that there would be great persecution for those who believed in him, and that within 40 years, the temple and Jerusalem would come to an end. They just didn't know what time period in that 40 years they would happen, and that there would be a great escape made available to them for all those who endured to the end. That does not mean until you die. That means until the end of the age, which ended in A.D. 70. The Mosaic economy was completely obliterated. So when you see the words, to the end, don't think till I die. <laughs> Doesn't mean that. <laughs> so part of this original prophecy regarding the eventual destruction of Jerusalem is found in Daniel 9, verses 24 through 26. And in these verses, the angel Gabriel comes to speak to Daniel because he's been praying and wanting understanding. So God sends Gabriel to help him understand. And he gets a lot more than he bargained for. I have it in the King James Version. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. Doesn't that sound interesting? An end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. And that actually is a Hebraic way of saying killed by capital punishment. Cut off meant you were judged guilty of a capital crime. <laughs> so the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. And the prince of the people that shall come to destroy the city, the Romans, the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. This prophecy was fulfilled just the way Scripture foretold it would be. Jesus was the Messiah who would bring in an ever 
lasting righteousness and everlasting right standing with God to those who would believe on him. And those who would refuse his rescue would find themselves in the midst of utter destruction, both of the city they loved and their dearly loved temple. So this letter to the Hebrews was written between the death of the Messiah and the coming destruction. So it was a very turbulent time for the Jews in particular, all of them, <laughs> the saved ones and the unsaved ones, but the saved ones most particularly, because Christianity had become illegal by the emperor Nero. They made it illegal because they were superstitious. They believed if you were worshiping other gods rather than the Roman gods, that their gods would be mad. <laughs> so bad things would happen because you are worshiping the wrong god. Nero decided to make the Christians the scapegoat and made their religion illegal. And so even more persecution came upon them. And of course, Jewish rulers that had hated and rejected and killed Jesus, they were doing the same thing to the followers. <laughs> their life was very hard. I can't even, I was trying to put myself into there going, gosh, Lord, how did you even manage to get anybody saved? <laughs> but where there's God, there's a way. Because of all of this turmoil, some of the Jewish believers in Jesus were still going to synagogue and even to the temple to offer sacrifices. Many may have just wanted to blend in and stay alive. <laughs> but it also appears from the writer of Hebrews that there were some Jewish believers who were just not convinced about the true identity of Jesus or the sufficiency of his sacrifice. His sacrifice was sufficient for literally all sin. One sacrifice for all sin. That just would not compute to a Jew. <laughs> because in their lives, every sin needed a sacrifice. You had to make right that which you had done. You were in charge of deciding whether or not you wanted to be right with God. I think God does this amazing thing through Christ. And he says, one sacrifice for all sin, and you don't even get to do it. <laughs> I'll do it for you. <laughs> That's hard to believe. If you don't believe so, just think back before you understood grace. How long did it take for you to feel like you were forgiven? How many times did you apologize over and over and over again? I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry, God, please don't be mad. Please don't be mad. Please don't be mad. I'm trying. <laughs> okay, that's not faith in the sacrifice. <laughs> that's faith in our ability to make ourselves right. And we can never make ourselves right. So this idea of one sacrifice being so powerful that no other sacrifices were ever needed seemed too good to be true. So some simply doubted the reality of an everlasting right standing with God based on Jesus <laughs> because it was never available prior to the cross. Even though this is old covenant, that's why I like it. It's in the Old Covenant, and it says this everlasting righteousness is going to come. I know it sounds crazy. <laughs> I know it sounds way too easy. But you'll be hard-pressed to believe it because of your natural thinking. The Old Covenant foretold it. They should have been able to receive it, but it was just so different 
from their everyday life. So the fact that many were still taking sacrifices to the temple demonstrates the truth that many were still babies in their understanding of the new covenant of grace and their understanding of righteousness because those two things go together. <laughs> and the writer tells us that this was the case because they had become sluggish or lazy or slothful in their hearing and understanding the new covenant. These were Jews. Their whole life had a law. Everything they did was based on a rule. From the time you get up to the time you go to bed. In fact, you better not mess around when you're sleeping because you can even get in trouble then. <laughs> a rule for everything. And they understood in their mind that if the rule was broken, I'm no longer right with God. And that was true for them. It isn't that there was no grace. Obviously, they had to make it the sacrifice and <laughs> go and take it and all that. So there was grace. They were in a covenant where God provided a salvation that was constantly available by faith. But they had to walk it out in the water. So these new covenant Hebrews had not yet given themselves over to giving more earnest heed to the truths of the new covenant of grace. And unfortunately, they didn't have a New Testament. <laughs> that would have helped a lot. <laughs> All they had was the old covenant to draw from. So if you don't know how to interpret the scripture, things like an everlasting righteousness, that doesn't sound real. <laughs> You're not going to understand it. So some of these New Covenant Hebrews were more comfortable just staying Jewish. <laughs> rather than trying to go and be one of those Christians. I mean, you could be a Christian silently. You know, those secret agent Christians. <laughs> Which was true. They could do that. But you see, their heart is going to convince them that that's not right. <laughs> their heart is going to tell them, you're denying Jesus. You really want to do that? <laughs> Their heart is going to tell them, God wants something better for me. And so they hadn't yet been able to renew their minds with all the bigness and beauty of this new covenant. And so they hadn't begun to experience and understand this new covenant of grace. So they were babies in their understanding. And we can see this truth regarding their immaturity in the, the last few verses of chapter 5 of Hebrews. I'll begin reading with verse 11 of chapter 5, and I have it in the Weymouth translation. Concerning him, Jesus as high priest, we have much to say, and much that it would be difficult to make clear to you, since you have become so dull of apprehension. They were constantly bombarded with law. So grace doesn't fit well in law. When you're constantly hearing the law, you're constantly feeling condemned, and you don't understand the grace that sets you free, <laughs> you're a baby. Verse 12. For although considering the long time you have been believers, baby Christians are not babies because they haven't been born again very long. <laughs> you can be 100 years old and still be a baby Christian. It's not based on how old you are. It's based on your understanding of righteousness. 
For although, considering the long time you have been believers, you ought now to be teachers of others. You really need someone to teach you over again the very rudiments of the truths of God. And you have come to require milk instead of solid food. Now, who is he talking to? <laughs> He's talking to baby believers who don't listen well. <laughs> we need to remember this as we approach chapter 6, <laughs> verse 13. By people who live on milk, I mean those who are imperfectly acquainted with the teaching concerning righteousness. Again, they hadn't yet grasped in its totality this idea of an everlasting right standing with God by grace through faith. So they just kept on doing their Jewishness stuff. <laughs> Verse 14, such persons are mere babes, but solid food is for adults. That is for those who through constant practice have their spiritual faculties carefully trained to distinguish between good and evil. The words good and evil are easy to understand. They bring to our remembrance the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which many understand as the principles of right and wrong. It's easy, even for spiritual babies, <laughs> to understand right and wrong. Three-year-olds understand the difference between right and wrong. <laughs> but the ability to truly understand the beauty and the word, that's what the word is, kalos, beautifulness, the beauty of the new covenant, and the worthlessness, that's what the word evil here is, kekos, worthlessness, of the lambs that they were still bringing to the temple, can only be given to us by the Holy Spirit, who confirms the truth of the new covenant to us through the word of God. So, as we begin reading chapter 6, we need to remember who the following passage is directed to in particular. <laughs> spiritual babies alive at that time in history who understood what was right and wrong because they knew the law but they had not yet grasped the deeper truths of their everlasting righteousness as a gift from God through faith and grace. So chapter 6 verse 1 in the Weymouth translation says this, therefore, I always love therefore because then you have to back up and say what did we just say? <laughs> oh yeah, you're spiritual babies. Because you're spiritual babies and you don't listen well, <laughs> I'm going to tell you this. We need to leave the elementary instruction about the Christ. And to them, Christ meant Messiah. The elementary instruction about Messiah. Let us advance to mature manhood and be not continually relaying a foundation of repentance from dead or lifeless works and of faith in God. That's pretty elementary. And that's about as elementary as you can get. But they were still missing the point that they needed to put their faith in Christ and his finished work. Yes, they had faith in God. These were Jews. <laughs> Having faith in Yahweh was easy. Having faith in Jesus, maybe not so much. <laughs> now, I like the word elementary in this verse because it brings to mind the elementary teachings or instructions that our children receive in elementary school. You know, one plus one equals two. But you got to start somewhere. <laughs> you have to have a good foundation. And faith in God is a good foundation. Because then you can understand, I do have faith in God by having faith in Christ. But they had to just quit trying to do the same things over and over and understand the new covenant. 
these new believers knew the elementary things about Christ as their Messiah. But Christ as the one and only Lamb of God and Christ as the eternal high priest, on these matters they were still more than a little fuzzy, which explains the rest of Hebrews. <laughs> and because they only had an elementary understanding of Messiah, what they needed was a more in-depth understanding of what Jesus as Messiah actually accomplished by being both our perfect sacrifice and our perfect eternal high priest. So, the basic foundational understanding about Christ was that they, as believers, needed to continue to think differently, to repent. That's what repent means, to think differently. Regarding what? There are dead works. Dead works are not what we look at and call sinful works. Dead works are religious stuff you do to make God like you. <laughs> okay, if, if I'm reading my Bible because I think God will be mad if I don't, that's a dead work. Because my reading or not reading does not change my right standing or my Father's love for me. That's a dead work if I'm doing it for the wrong reason. So they needed to continue to repent regarding all those works of the law that they thought they were meriting God's favor. Again, remember, they needed to continue to put faith in Christ because he was the one who was prophesied that he would bring them this everlasting righteousness and the destruction of the Jerusalem. <laughs> I like that he puts it all in one place for us to see. Righteousness and destruction, both are coming. <laughs> these particular baby believers needed to keep both of these truths in the forefront of their thoughts. It was important for their physical life that they understood the time. So faith in Christ and a change of mind regarding their dead religious works was truly the foundational belief that they could continue to build on once they were in the new covenant. But as Jews, what were they to do with all their Jewish beliefs that sort of overlapped the Christian beliefs? <laughs> and we see some of these beliefs in the following verse. Again, these are leave the foundation and go on. Some of the things we were supposed to go on from were the teaching about ceremonial washings. The King James uses the word baptism, but it doesn't refer to what we call Christian baptism. It refers to the Jewish idea of baptism. New converts to Judaism, just like new converts to Christianity, are required to be baptized in water. This is very Jewish. <laughs> we are not required to be baptized in water for our salvation. The Jews back then, though, they understood this as a leaving of your old life and beginning a new life in Judaism. Same thing that we understand that why we would get uh, water baptized. But they had these baptisms all the time. If you got defiled, <laughs> you got to go take a bath, a ritual cleansing. So that's what they're talking about. Now think about it. You've been trained your whole life. You got unclean. It's time to go take a ritual bath. But now, now you're a Christian. <laughs> but you've done this your whole life. If I'm not convinced the blood of Jesus is enough, what am I going to do? I'm going to go do what I've always done. Believing this is what makes God happy, instead of understanding that it's Jesus that makes God happy. <laughs> 
So the teaching about ceremonial washing, the laying on hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and the last judgment. Now that sounds very Christian, doesn't it? And that's why some scholars are like, mm, maybe it's to unbelievers, maybe it's to Jews, mm, they're not sure. I think it's very obvious. These are baby believers. <laughs> so these four topics have similar beliefs in both systems of belief, Christianity and Judaism. The Jews believed in what we call baptism of new converts, but they also believed in the laying on of hands. Now, laying on of hands, what we do in the Christian faith, we understand the laying on of hands for the transmission of power, the gifts of the Spirit, the operations of the Spirit. Consecrating someone into the ministry. These are all very much what the Jewish people did as well. But when you told a Jew, ask them about laying on of hands, what they would immediately think of is their lamb. Because what they would do is they would bring their lamb and they would lay their hands on it and confess their sin, thereby transferring the guilt to the lamb. When they're talking about laying on of hands, this is not the same thing as Christians talking about laying on of hands. And that's his point. He's saying you have to leave that back there, baby believers, and adopt the new way of thinking. What they really needed, and this is what he keeps telling them, what these baby believers really needed was to understand that Jesus had provided them with an everlasting righteousness. That's mind-boggling. Four years... I did not understand this everlasting being right with God all the time, regardless of what I did. And so I was always repenting, what I called repenting, <laughs> being sorry, trying to make amends, trying to make God happy. He was never once, for one second, unhappy with who I am. If he didn't like what I did, he would tell me. That's all. <laughs> I didn't become unright. So, both the Jews and the Christians believed in the resurrection of the dead, too, and the final judgment. But their interpretation of how these would take place needed to be updated. Yes, the righteous would be resurrected to eternal life, but those counted as righteous would only be those who believed on Jesus for their righteousness, not those who rejected Jesus and trusted in the law of Moses. Also, at the final judgment, both the Christians and the Jews believed that the works of the believers would be judged. But the Christians believed that their works would be judged also, but not for condemnation. Yeah, God's going to judge our works. He's not going to judge us. He's going to say, how well did you do? Let's look and see how well you did, and I'll, and I'll praise you for all the things you did through me. <laughs> but there's no condemnation. That's not what the Jews believed. They believed you were going to get what was coming to you. <laughs> and they believed what would be rewarded were works of the law, not works of faith. So the Jewish believers still had a lot of Old Covenant ideas mixed together with the New Covenant regarding Jesus as their Messiah. But what they really needed to understand was their everlasting righteousness and that Jesus as their high priest and perfect sacrifice is the one who brought them to this place of everlasting righteousness. This is why the author goes on to talk so much about Jesus as the high priest and the perfect sacrifice. But here in chapter 6, the author tells them that they are spiritual babes and are in need of greater truths regarding what? Everlasting righteousness, <laughs> which is able to empower them to grow into mature Christians. Isn't that interesting? The maturity here is looked at as, do you understand what Jesus did? 
Or do you think it is a lamb-by-lamb salvation? Verse 3. And advance or mature, we will, if God permits us to do so. I believe the author is saying that he plans on giving them the truths they need, <laughs> which is what he does, to begin to give more earnest heed to those truths in order to grow spiritually mature. Because God is always in favor of us maturing spiritually and would not forbid our advancement and growth. In fact, the whole book, <laughs> the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to move these believers into a place of confidence where they can have faith, that they can rest, that it is a finished work. Jesus did it all so that they can have faith to rest in him and in his promises, even when things are really hard. Because their lives were really hard, which is why they wanted to go back into Judaism. Also, we see that the author has used the word we. He didn't use the word you, and you're going to advance. <laughs> he said we are going to advance. Together, it was something that they would do. He would help them together advance them in the truths they needed in their foundation. So he's going to do that through his letter. So the phrase, if God permits, refers not to them advancing in spiritual truth, but in how much the author is able to cover in his letter. I was surprised to find that some scholars actually embraced the idea that a believer could sin to the point where God would not allow them to grow up spiritually. <laughs> when the only reason that they would be continuing to sin would be because they haven't yet grown up spiritually. Hmm, yes. What? <laughs> and this is doctrine that is taught today. That if you sin enough, God might put you on hold and not let you grow up. Does that sound like a good daddy to you? <laughs> no, I won't let you grow up. <laughs> That's just silly. <laughs> God would not punish a baby believer for being a baby believer. Now, I used to think he would. <laughs> you need to grow up, smack. <laughs> oh, I'm trying. <laughs> that was never what God was doing. Never. <laughs> Instead, what a good daddy does is he encourages them in the truths that they need to be able to walk out and understand so that they can stop being a baby believer, and they can learn to trust God to take them into their promise instead of trying to save themselves all the time and make themselves righteous all the time in their own strength. So in verse 3, the author tells them that together, he and them, they're going to advance spiritually. But then in verse 4, we find the warning directed specifically at these spiritual babies. This warning is not for all spiritual babies. It is only directed to those spiritual babies alive at that time. These spiritual babies were the ones who were going back into Judaism as a way to save their life. Or back into Judaism because they weren't sure <laughs> that Jesus was enough. Verse 4. For it is impossible. And it really does mean impossible. Some translators who try to fix this the way they want it to come out say, it just means it's pretty difficult. <laughs> <laughs> it 
difficult and impossible, not the same thing. <laughs> it is impossible in the case of those. Now, he's not saying to them, it's impossible for you. He's saying, I want you to look over at those guys over there. <laughs> those ones who have once for all been enlightened and have tasted the sweetness of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have realized how good the word of God is and how mighty are the powers of the coming age and then fell away. The author appears to want to convey the fact that these are real Christians. <laughs> real Christians are the ones who have been enlightened. Real Christians are the ones who has tasted the sweetness of the heavenly gift and made partakers of the Holy Spirit. You cannot spit Jesus out. Some ministers, in order to fix this, to fit their theology, say, you can taste Jesus, and if you don't like how he tastes, you can spit him out. <laughs> and then you were never really saved to begin with. <laughs> these are not people who were playing at being a Christian these were not false converts no one in their right mind would pretend to be a Christian during this time in history simply because being a Christian could get them fed to a lion tortured on a cross or be made into a burning torch no one's going to want to do that just to pretend to be your Christian. <laughs> these are not, quote-unquote, false converts. <laughs> All of these reasons that why they would not want to pretend to be one were the reasons why some of them were pretending they weren't Christians. Real Christians pretending they're not. <laughs> and going back into the practices of Judaism. But there are some scholars who want to categorize these particular Hebrews as unsaved because they want to maintain the belief that real Christians cannot fall away. Therefore, they say that these people cannot be real. You might have heard something like this. If a believer that you know falls into a serious sin, you will hear something like, well, they must have never really been saved to begin with. That sound right? <laughs> why would you even today, why would you pretend to be a Christian? <laughs> you wouldn't. <laughs> they say that everything in this list can also pertain to the unsaved Jews. And so they try to slant it to say these are unsaved Jews who have not yet accepted Christ or want to accept Christ. <laughs> so, and they're right, if wiggle it a little. <laughs> wiggle the interpretation just a little bit to make it fit. The Jews were the first to be enlightened regarding the truth of the existence of the one and only true and living God. And his presence was manifested to them in a pillar of cloud and fire, light. They had also tasted the sweetness of the heavenly gift. What gift would that be? Manna from heaven. <laughs> and under the Old Covenant, many also had partaken of miraculous empowerments of the Holy Spirit, like David, who actually then prayed, God, take not the Holy Spirit from me. And they knew that the good word of God, the way they saw it, was through Moses, <laughs> who also demonstrated the powers of the age to come through the miracles that God worked through him. They just didn't know that their present age would come to an end. 
they believed Moses demonstrated the powers of the coming age. They just didn't think it was really here yet. <laughs> so the unsaved Jews could fit into these descriptions by simply applying a little creative interpretation. But that doesn't really make any sense. Why would the author try to warn unsaved people regarding the danger of falling away from Christianity? <laughs> he wouldn't. <laughs> so he must have been warning real Christians about a danger of, quote-unquote, falling away. And it appears that he may have even had personal experience with some of those real Christians who had already fallen away. By the author using the word those, he may be using real-life examples of people that he knew. See, he was really good friends with these people. We'll see that later on. He's not writing to strangers. He's writing to people he knows and loves. I mean, he had to tell them, I hate to tell you, but you're babies. <laughs> so in the Weymouth translation, the Weymouth translation puts the words fallen away into the correct verb tense. The King James does not. It's past tense. It isn't if you shall fall away. He says those who have fallen away. If you look it up in the, in the interlinear translation, you can see that the Weymouth translation is more accurately translated. Also, these fallen ones are not hypothetical people. That's another way we get around what it actually says. <laughs> hypothetical believers in a hypothetical situation, which is how they try to explain away what it says. But his point is that these real baby Christians, there were some of them who had already fallen away, and he's warning them not to do the same thing. But what did these baby Christians over there fall into? What exactly does fallen away mean? Let's look at the definition in the Vine's Expositional Dictionary. It's the Greek word peripipto, and properly, which means in the strictest sense, to fall in one's way. Para means by, and pipto means to fall. So it signifies to fall away. That's all it means. It means to fall down. <laughs> to fall to the side. Then they add some interpretation <laughs> from adherence to the realities and facts of faith. And they point the reader to Hebrews 6.6. 6. What does this mean? To fall away. To fall down. To fall aside. To fall short of God's glory. To fall. You know what we call it falling? We call it sin. <laughs> That's all that this is. He's telling them what they're doing to try to save their lives or what they're doing because they're not sure is sin. Just so you know. <laughs> it's not okay with God to pretend you're not a Christian. <laughs> so does this sin of falling away mean that real Christians can lose their salvation? And if so, what happens to their everlasting right standing with God if it's everlasting? <laughs> makes no sense. Can someone with everlasting right standing with God based on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection become unright with God because of sin? No, of course not. 
And that's what the author is trying to convey to these baby Christians through the book of Hebrews. That Jesus is better. <laughs> His one sacrifice is better than all the lambs. He's better than the old covenant way of salvation. And he's better because of his once-for-all sacrifice is perfect and complete. It is the perfect sacrifice, the complete sacrifice, the total sacrifice that has already addressed all sin for all time. Even the future ones. <laughs> I was taught, you come to Jesus, you get a clean slate. Now start <laughs> keeping track <laughs> it's up to you <laughs> to get out that bar of soap and wash away your sins again no <laughs> no additional sacrifices of any kind were to ever be needed in any way shape or form to be right with God so they can simply rest once they believe that they could simply rest in God's goodness and trust his word to them that they actually have an everlasting right standing with God so, what were these baby believers in danger of doing? He's warning them. Warning, warning. Danger, danger. <laughs> and what is he trying to tell them? I believe the answer is in verse 6. I have it for you in the King James and the Wave, so you can see how they translate. The King James says, and it picks up impossible from verse 4, it is impossible if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. And then the Weymouth says it this way, It is impossible, I say, to keep bringing them back to a new repentance, for to their own undoing of their confidence, they are repeatedly crucifying the Son of God afresh and exposing him to open shame. Have you ever wondered what they were doing <laughs> that was crucifying Jesus afresh? I have heard in the past that that means they were sinning. They've only shot of God's glory, therefore they're crucifying God afresh. So if you sin, <laughs> you're driving the nails in Jesus all over again. You heard that one before? <laughs> no, it does not mean that at all. <laughs> These believers were doing something that looked like they were re-crucifying Christ. They were somehow declaring that Jesus was not enough. This was a very specific sin that only they can do that we cannot do today. It was by continuing to bring lambs to the temple to be sacrificed. All of the old covenant lambs were only a type and shadow of the one true and living God and the lamb who would one day come and be the human representative for all people. The lamb was a prototype of Jesus. Every lamb. So every lamb they sacrificed after they received Jesus was an open declaration of their unbelief in the all-sufficiency of Christ. In other words, they're saying, Jesus isn't enough. We have to crucify him again. <laughs> I sinned today. Jesus needs to die again. Because they had a lamb-by-lamb lamb mentality instead of a once-for-all miraculous sacrifice. So they're the only ones who could do this. You know why? We don't have a temple. <laughs> We're not getting lambs and getting, trying to get God to forgive us again 
when the blood of Jesus has already cleansed us from all sin and all unrighteousness. So this sin is not something a typical Christian is going to be doing. <laughs> As a type and shadow, they were constantly re-crucifying Jesus and openly declaring that his literal sacrifice was not enough to provide them with this prophesied everlasting righteousness. So this sin was part of them falling back into their old covenant mindset of law-keeping as a means of apprehending righteousness. See, if you're righteous, you get blessing. And one of the blessings is protection. So if they feel like they're following Jesus, but they don't have those things, what are they going to do to try to get those things? <laughs> These baby believers were not running amok with a sinful lifestyle. That's how some people want to read this. Well, they were just running them. No, they went back to the law. They fell away from grace to go back to law-keeping as a way of making themselves acceptable to God. That was what they were doing wrong. They just went back into trusting their own ability to provide themselves with right standing with God through the animal sacrifice. Now, the King James says that if they fall away into this re-crucifying of Jesus unto themselves, that it would be impossible to renew them unto repentance. Some people read that and they say, oh, you lost your salvation and it's impossible for you to come back. Is that what it says? <laughs> what is repentance? A change of mind, a change of direction. That's what they were needing. <laughs> it says it's impossible for them to come back to this place of repentance. Some people think repentance is also sorrow. Were these Christians, did they not have a sense of repentance? Were they not sorry for their sin? Well, they must have been because they were re-crucifying Jesus <laughs> to try to get it. <laughs> so they were obviously upset about their sin. They were obviously feeling condemned and wanted a way of relief. So this repentance isn't about being sorry. This repentance is about changing their mind. What would happen to their faith in the blood of Jesus, if by going back into Judaism, it actually looked like it was working. As these baby believers once again became active in their communities and began participating at the temple again, a whole lot of persecution would go away. And a whole lot of fear would go away. <laughs> so if they believed that this relief was coming from they're reinstating their temple sacrifice and their law-keeping? Are they going to change their mind about what they're doing? No, because they're convinced it works. God is honoring me and taking care of me and providing for me because of the sacrifices that I'm making. You're not going to convince a believer who thinks that that kind of stuff works to stop doing it. <laughs> they wouldn't be able to change their mind as long as they stayed in that condition. Baby believers are dumb. <laughs> but God loves baby believers. <laughs> it is never actually impossible for God to change somebody's mind. It's not. However, God does not force anyone, saved or unsaved, to renew their mind. They don't want their mind renewed. They don't want their mind changed. 
He's not going to force them to do so. We can see this with the unbelieving Pharisees of Jesus' day. They were not interested in Jesus changing their minds about himself because they were not actually looking for the truth of God. They were simply looking to retain the power over people. And we can see this in John chapter 5, beginning with verse 39. I have it in the Passion Translation. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and also to a crowd of sinners. Beginning with verse 39. You are busy analyzing the scriptures, frantically pouring over them in hopes of gaining eternal life. Everything you read points to me, yet you still refuse to come to me so that I can give you the life you're looking for, eternal life. I do not accept honor that comes from men, for I know what kind of people you really are, and I can see that the love of God has found no home in you. I have come to represent my Father, yet you refuse to embrace me in faith. And when someone comes in their own name and with their own agenda, you readily accept him. Of course, you're unable to believe in me, for you live for the praises of others and not for the praise that comes from the only true God. I won't be the one who accuses you before the Father. The one who will incriminate you is Moses, the very one you claim to obey, the one in whom you trust. If you really believed what Moses has written, then you would embrace me, for Moses wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, no wonder you don't believe what I say. The ruling Pharisees were not actually looking for God or for truth. So God let them have their own way. He doesn't try to force them to believe. They have already made up their own mind that they don't want what Jesus has or what he's preaching. Now, that's not the way God treats new converts. His baby believers. <laughs> he doesn't say, too bad for you, I'll just leave you so you can just have your own way. He does not do that. I'm going to see this in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. They were very put out. <laughs> Pharisees and scribes had no love or compassion for those who had wandered away from God because they had wandered away from God. But God himself did, and he sent the good shepherd to find them and bring them home. Verse 3, And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth he not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? Shepherds typically did not leave their flocks completely unattended. Even today, shepherds often will leave their flocks unsupervised by themselves, but supervised by herding dogs. <laughs> this is important because Jesus, it is him he's talking about. <laughs> he doesn't leave people unattended to go get others. <laughs> <laughs> he never leaves or forsakes. <laughs> and when he hath found it, the lamb that wandered off, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. It was probably a baby sheep who wandered off from the flock. Those baby believers. 
who thought they were all grown up, who thought they knew what they were doing. <laughs> and then he ends up far from home, far from where he should be, and he doesn't know the way back. It must have been a lamb, a baby believer, because otherwise it would weigh about 120 to 150 pounds, and that would be extremely hard to carry on your shoulders. <laughs> it's the babies that he picks up and carries. So when the shepherd who loves his sheep finds it, he doesn't scold it, he doesn't spank it, and he doesn't break its legs. <laughs> There's no breaking of legs in this scripture. <laughs> he simply draws the wayward sheep close to his heart and carries it on his shoulders back to where it belongs. Verse 6. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. These were Jews who had wandered away from the Father. He still considered them his. <laughs> and he went to find them. They just needed their mind changed. That God is good and God's not mad. Now, if God will stop at nothing to find and rescue a wayward sheep under the old covenant, how much more will he do the same to rescue one of his new covenant sheep who wasn't quite as mature as he thought he was? <laughs> We are permanently connected to God the Father, to the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit. And if we wander into something we shouldn't, the Holy Spirit is ready and willing to lead us back into all the truth. But again, we have to be willing to listen. And that's why God had the writer of Hebrews write to these baby believers, to warn them over and over again not to be like their forefathers, not to be like those who had fallen away, those who neglected the voice of the Holy Spirit and failed to enter into their land of promise. Hebrew baby believers were in danger of doing the same kind of thing, forfeiting what God had promised them because they failed to continue in faith in God's promise and in God's character. They failed to continue to believe that he had the power to lead them safely out of persecution, to protect them while they're in it, and to take them out of it. They simply needed to be like their old covenant heroes who by faith and patience inherited the promises. So, do the scary sounding scriptures in Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, mean that these baby believers who went back into Judaism as a way of saving their lives would lose their everlasting righteousness and be damned to hell? There are many Armenian scholars who believe that that's indeed the case. However, I don't see that the scriptures that we've looked at today support that theory. So, no, it doesn't mean that. The term fallen away doesn't mean lost forever. <laughs> it just means you're not where you're supposed to be. <laughs> you need to go back to the flock. <laughs> it simply means they fell short of God's glorious perfection. They fell. They sinned. That's all that that means. <laughs> and sin does not have the power to undo our new creation identity or take us out of the kingdom of God because we have been given an everlasting right standing with God through Jesus. So what did their sin do to them? 
Their sin put them in a position to lose out on what God had already planned for them. He didn't take away his presence. He didn't take away his help. He didn't take away his grace. He didn't take anything away from those baby believers who were where they shouldn't be. <laughs> they just weren't going to participate in what he planned for them. He had the great escape. They could go through, but you got to listen. <laughs> they could miss out on participating in the next great escape. But being in the wrong place at the wrong time, doing the wrong things, unfortunately brings a fruit of you missing the things you're supposed to apprehend. <laughs> Verses 7 and 8. But the land has drunk in the rain that often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those whose sakes indeed it is tilled, has a share in God's blessing. But if it only yields a mass of thorns and briars, it is considered worthless and is in danger of being cursed, and in the end will be destroyed by fire. Many people look at this and said, See? Going to hell. <laughs> That's not what this means. This does not mention hell. This has nothing to do with hell. These two verses, the author is comparing the fruitfulness of a faithful, mature believer with the fruitfulness of an immature, baby, wandering believer. Now, for the Jews, the concept of being blessed for obedience and being cursed for disobedience was exactly with what they were raised with. So they understood what he was talking about. So these verses would not cause them to think hell or heaven. These verses are about living in the beauty of the new covenant, which produces blessings in and through our lives, versus living in the disobedience brought on by fear, doubt, unbelief, and legalism, which can only produce a massive amount of thorns and briars. And that sounds pretty painful. And indeed, it should. Because that's the point. He's saying you're not going to be happy by going over there pretending you're not a Christian. <laughs> The outcome is going to be very painful. So there aren't two different people being represented in these verses. It's one land or one man that has received grace. And that land or man can choose to produce either one of these two different responses. Faith in God's grace or fear in unbelief. And of course, I don't think it's an accident that the author reminds the baby believers that in the end of the age, their literal land and their literal lives could be in danger of experiencing the prophesied judgment that would literally destroy their entire land and life with literal fire. This wasn't a vain threat. This was a real danger for them. So these spiritual babies could choose to give more superabundant attention to the things that they had heard regarding Christ as their new high priest who was also the one and only acceptable sacrifice to God on their behalf, and who had actually brought them into the place of everlasting righteousness, right standing, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Or they could continue to place their faith in their own sacrifices and law-keeping and find that their lives would only produce painful thorns and briars. Running away from God is never a good idea. He goes with you, <laughs> but you miss out all the good things he has for you. And that's really the point that he's trying to make to these babies believers. What they would miss out on wasn't just a great escape. They would miss out on living life. They would die. Now, thankfully, mostly, we don't have that 
If we disobey Christ, there is no death waiting for us. But this was, they knew it was coming. They knew what was going to happen. And yet, because the persecution was so severe, let's just pretend we're not Christians. Maybe Jesus isn't really enough. And he's letting them know that won't work out well. <laughs> that won't work out well and your heart won't like it. Because you have an everlasting righteousness. You are one spirit with the living God. And when we step outside of our identity, our heart tells us, that's not who you are. You're a believer. You're a Christian. You're one with Christ. He is your life. Amen? Father, can we thank you. Your word is easy. It takes brilliant men to brilliantly mess it up. But it is easy if we take it slow and we let the Holy Spirit show us what it really says. It doesn't say that believers can lose their salvation. It doesn't say that God is mad at them. It doesn't say that God's going to just leave them by themselves. It doesn't say any of that. The Word shows us that you have a heart for humanity. You have a heart for us. And if we are out of the way somewhere in our life, you are not going to just leave us there. You are going to begin to woo us back to see the truth of who you are and who we are in you. Father, can we thank you that knowing you does bring blessing. It does bring protection. It does do all the things that these baby believers were looking for. But it does all these things by faith, by believing what you tell us, by believing and understanding what you've done for us, and that we are included in your sacrifice. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 833-632-1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.